This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, folks, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Caston-Smith, and I will be your host today. Joining me is Will Bushman. Hi, Sam. Welcome back. It's good to be back. For those of you who have been getting your episodes every week and you hear welcome back, you're wondering what's going on. Well, I've been on sabbatical for the last few months, and we had a, a series that we just dropped that was How Did We Get Here? It was the 10 episodes talking about how uh, the situation in America, the slide into uh, intersectionality and cultural Marxism and the collapse, it feels like, of education. So we we packaged all of that series together before I went on sabbatical. So it's actually been a few months since Will and I have been in the saddle in our studio doing another episode. So we're going to see if it's like riding a bike or if we're going to be really bad <laughs> some today. some rust involved. <laughs> yeah, there might, there might be some rust. And so as you can tell, our intro music is back to the old style of music, which is going to be an indication that we're jumping back into the scriptures to do some exegesis on a passage that's fairly famous, but a lot of people don't see the incredible significance that's behind the Song of Moses. So in our biblical series, we ended last time in Exodus chapter 14 with the great exodus from Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea, God's great triumph over Pharaoh. And now in Exodus 15, we are jumping in and we are going to see the Israelites celebrating the goodness of God after they've just been delivered from slavery in Egypt. So this chapter is going to hold, this is the first of almost 200 different songs that are contained in the Bible. This is going to be the first one, at least that I know of, that is recorded in all of the scriptures. And so you got to imagine the Israelites have just come through the Red Sea. They've watched the waters collapse on Pharaoh's army. They're on the other side and they're realizing for the first time they are free from the threat of Pharaoh, the serpent crowned king. They they have a new lease, of a brand new start. And what you're going to see as they go forward, there are so many things that are new. The Hebrew calendar is going to start here. God is going to institute a covenant of the law with Israel. He is going to do all sorts of things that are going to mark a brand new beginning. And if you remember our last episode on Exodus 14, so much about the crossing of the Red Sea was about making a new creation, right? God's separating the waters. He's bringing light in the darkness and separating the light from the darkness. He's making dry ground. And on the third day, the Israelites come through to a brand new land. It's, it's echoing creation. And so now on the other side, the Israelites have this worship service. And in verse one, we start and it says, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. So real quick, how do they know this song? I've, that's what I was, I've never actually thought about that, that they were actually singing it. Yeah. They just, all of everybody, all of a sudden bursts in. It's like a musical where everybody knows the lyrics. Yeah, They just popped in. So it, it makes you wonder, like, are they walking around as Moses? Has Moses been rehearsing this? I just imagine like Moses starts singing it and everybody's going, what's he doing? And then they start recognizing the lyrics and remembering and they join in. And before you know it, 
you have 2 million people that are in the first worship song recorded in scripture where you've got a massive choir of saints and and some not so saintly people too true that are belting out the song of moses which by the way though it's the first song that is sung in the scriptures it will be sung in heaven forever and ever and ever did you know that i did not revelation 15 we are told that there are two songs that we will sing forever the song of moses so well, this song, you're going to be singing in heaven. You might want to get to know it. Yeah, I guess we should practice. Right? Does anybody put this to music ever? I, I'm sure it is. Like, if you've ever watched the... the uh, To bring in Prince of Egypt into this? Prince of Egypt. They do sing it, and that, that is actually in the Hebrew. So in that song, it's actually set to music. I don't know what the first song sounded like when it was originally sung. But you're going to sing this forever along with another song that's called the Song of the Lamb, which is contained in Revelation 15. You can go and you could read that on your own. But I just imagine this, is, this being the first, at least recorded, massive worship song in the Bible. And you forget how many people are there. Like you said, that would be wild. Two million. I mean, there's 600,000 men. Fill in women that's and children. Math. And you've got a massive worship service. That's really cool. And a lot of angst that has just been, you know, you've just had the greatest deliverance that God performs in the entire Old Testament. You're looking at his faithfulness at the Red Sea, and all of a sudden Moses starts bumping this great worship song that we're going to be singing for all time, and two million people are joining in just belting this out like i would this would have been this is one of those times where if you had a time machine and you could go back and watch like the crossing of the red sea and all that and then to experience the relief and the celebration and the worship that that would have been at this moment i imagine it would have been powerful yeah because this is probably the largest group to experience the same near-death experience and the exuberation from surviving after the fact that's right because like, very few people feel that. You know, you get in a car accident and you look over and whoever's with you is safe and you guys are just elated and excited. But now mm-hmm. all of a sudden, that many people, like that doesn't happen normally. Yeah, this would have been tremendously moving. It, it, it would have been a lot of fun. I imagine there were a lot of tears of joy and a lot of smiles and a lot of gratitude at this moment. And they're all, you notice in the song, one of the things that I love about Moses is he's described as being very humble. There's not a word in this song about him. Hmm. There's nothing about him or Miriam or Aaron. Every bit of this song is about the Lord and what God has done. I guess we'll get to experience a better version of even them singing it. Oh, yeah. If we're singing in heaven, it'll, it has to be better than that earthly yeah, experience. We so get, that's pretty exciting to look forward to before we even start the song. That's right. We, there's going to be millions and millions and maybe billions and all the choirs of angels. There's got to be billions, right? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, but narrow is the road, right? So we're, we're going to hope. There's we, 8 billion people on the planet right now. So going back all of history, we got to yeah. get, we got to have some numbers. Uh, we can, we, we'll hope. We'll go with it. Okay. But it's going to be an impressive choir no matter what. And so you've got these two songs that we sing in heaven forever. And I want to stop for a moment because one of, uh, there's going to be one of my theories. I haven't heard anyone else teach this before. So have your your warning bells ready to go. (laughs) Start listening now. Test this against scripture. 
But the reason why, now some of this is pretty evident, like it's not controversial, I don't think at all, but the reason why you're going to sing the song of Moses in heaven forever is because God is going to perform another exodus for us. So we're not just going to be singing the song of Moses in heaven going, hey, God did this for Moses and a bunch of Israelites that were, you know, 3,500 years before we came around, but we'll join in their celebration. When you read the book of Revelation, and we're going to talk about this as the podcast goes, not all at once, but what you're going to find is Revelation is telling the story of the apocalypse in a way that is inviting you to see that when God comes and he calls us up and raises our bodies and he calls us into the skies and and you have that great apocalyptic second coming moment where the church triumphant and the church militant join together, that is described in terms of it's telling you it's another exodus Hmm. and it's going to be wonderful. So when you learn that the song of Moses is going to be sung in heaven forever, listen to the way that it's described. See if you pick up on anything. Ready? So this is Revelation 15 verse 2. It says, And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire. Hang on to that. It'll be important later. Standing beside the sea. Those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name, and they held harps given to them by God, and they sang the song of Moses and the servant of God and the song of the Lamb. So it's describing the second coming. Here comes the judgment of God and the salvation of his people in that final battle, right? And where are they standing? By a sea. By a sea. Hmm. And what are they singing? Song of Moses. So it's telling you these people that are standing by that sea are going to have experienced something that was similar to Moses, except you're not just going to be singing the song of Moses. You're going to be singing the song of the Lamb, hmm. Christ, right, who's going to come and perform something far greater than Moses ever did. And so let's jump in real quick and let's sing or read. Yeah, let's just read it. <laughs> Chapter 15, Exodus 15, verse 1. It says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And you're going to see throughout the song and throughout the rest of Scripture, God likes throwing things in the sea. His enemies, (laughs) things that oppose him, like just throw it in the sea. Like throw it in the drink. (laughs) And you're, you're going to see that. We'll see some more of that even in the song as we go. And... This is a victory. Notice that that it's the beast and his image, right? And over the number of his name, that's what we're told in Revelation when, when Satan is destroyed. It's the beast and his image and those who number his name. Well, what's the image that we see with Pharaoh? It's, it's an echo. It's the serpent, right? Yeah. And those who walk by his name. So it, it's dividing camps. Either you bear his image and his name, Right, your your the your father is the devil, or your father is the Lord. You bear the name of your the the enemy, or you bear the name of the Lord, and so that's what's going on here. So in verse two, it says, "The Lord is." I love this. The Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. And it's really easy to read because you, you find language like that in the Psalms, but listen yeah. to what it's saying because it's, it's different. Like when it says the Lord is my strength, it's not saying the Lord gives you strength. Hmm. 
It's not saying he provides you strength. It's saying he, the person, the Lord, is your strength. So when someone asks you, how strong are you? It's not about what the Lord has given to you, not how the Lord is, you know, really, man, he's really filled me with strength. No, he is your strength. You could be the weakest person with the the least ability, the most inept, and if your faith is in the Lord and he counts you as one of his own, the Lord is your strength. How strong are you? Well, count to pull out the infinite measurement of the Lord's strength because he has your back. He is your strength. He, this is kind of an interesting one, he is your song. What does that even mean? What does that mean when you hear that? He is your song. I think of like joy in that moment. Mm-hmm. Like he's my, uh, he, I want to sing over him. But what does that mean? Like if he's your song, well, like circumstances can come and strip you of your joy, right? Like you, you might not want to sing because of your circumstances or your own willpower. But if he is your song, what's going to strip your song away? Nothing. You could be in the worst mood imaginable. You could be going through the hardest circumstances imaginable. imaginable. And if you have no song to sing, it's okay because you know why? He's your song. He's rejoicing over you with singing. He's the source of your joy. And what can snatch that away from him? Nothing. Why? Because he has become my salvation. Nothing can take it away. It's not my righteousness is my salvation. My obedience is my salvation. Nope, he is. It's all him. He's my strength. He's my song. He's my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. That's reason to praise him. And then he says something kind of peculiar, right? He says, my father's God, and I will exalt him. What What do we know about Moses' father? He's a guy named Amram, right? What did he spend his whole life doing? I have no idea. Should I know this? Yeah, sure. A shepherd? Well, no. no what, what's he doing in Egypt? What is every Hebrew doing in Egypt? Oh, he's a slave. He's a slave. So now get that. Moses is is looking and he's saying, this is my father's God. Well, if anybody had a reason to say my God failed me, huh. it's a man who spent his entire life up to this point as a slave. And Moses is saying my, he was no less faithful to him as a slave than he is to us as free men. And by the way, Amram lives to be 137 years old. Moses is 80 when he leads them out of Egypt. So in all likelihood, Amram's singing this song. Moses and his dad get to walk out of Egypt. Imagine that. That's pretty cool. So the dad that you left when you were a little boy and went into Pharaoh's house, now all of a sudden Moses, in the midst of leading all the people of Israel, is rebuilding a relationship with dear old dad. <laughs> you know, He's getting to, to know his sister Miriam again and to know his brother Aaron again. And these relationships that have been dead for decades, all of a sudden Moses gets back. And to honor his dad, who's probably out there in the crowds, he says, my father's God. He's recognizing that this is a God of the generations. And even when it seemed like all hope was lost, God was no less faithful. That's pretty cool. It's just a throwaway line that you read right past. But that's powerful to imagine Moses belting this out and Amram to have heard that. Yeah, because I'm sure Moses' dad went through a whole slurry of emotions his whole life thinking, man, I sent my kid down a river, then he's in Pharaoh's house, and all of a sudden... Your son comes yeah. back that you don't really know at all. Yeah. Gone for four decades and yeah. the Midian wilderness. You're like, I think that's my son, but I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. And the, wow. Yeah. The family background. 
You don't think, I mean, we read right past this without imagining what's going on, but Moses is dealing with a lot. I don't think I've... (laughs) I don't think I've ever heard Moses' dad's name until right now. That's why yeah. I was so confused yeah. by it. I've had never heard anyone speak about his biological father. I guess his only father. Yeah, he's not mentioned in the birth narrative of Moses at all. So it's like you just, it's not until you get to the genealogies of Exodus chapter six that huh. he shows up and you're told, oh, he lived 137 years. That's all we know about him huh. and his mother, Jacobet. Like the, we don't know much about the family, but unless. Unless Amram was more than 57 years old when he had Moses, he's still alive at the time of the Exodus. So he's probably alive at the time of the Exodus, which is kind of cool to think about. So the next line that Moses says is another one of these that if you just read past it, you would be, you know, like, you don't think about it. But if you stop and and consider what it's saying, it is like profound, (laughs) really profound. None of this is wasted language. He says, verse three, the Lord is a man of war. Say what? Like there's all parts of that sentence that should cause you to go. (laughs) You're like, what? The first, the Lord is a man and it's Yahweh. The name there, the Lord, the Hebrew there is Yahweh is a man. What do you do with that? I'm hoping you're going to tell us. (laughs) Well, I mean, your initial reaction is to think, okay, Yahweh is a man. Well, that actually does become true true in the person of Jesus Christ. But at this point, Yahweh is a divine spirit, like he's he's not a man, and yet he will become a man in the second person of the Trinity with Jesus. But also, one of the interesting things is the Hebrew word there that's used for man is ish, and it can also mean husband. Hmm. So no matter whether it's saying, you know, Yahweh is a man or Yahweh is a husband, in either case, it's telling you Yahweh has thrown his lot in with humanity. He's, he either is a man or he's married to humanity. And it's saying he's with us. Like he is so totally devoted to us that he identifies with us. He's a man, which we'll see ultimately in Christ, who's the ultimate bridegroom for, for humanity in the church. But that part's surprising. Okay, so Yahweh's a man, but then it says he's a man of war. And we don't like to hear that. Like in our modern culture, it's like, no, 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 he's the prince of peace. He's only that. We we only want to consider the side of God that's, you know, nice and fluffy and kind and gentle. No, he's a man of war. He just threw Pharaoh's army in the sea, and there's a bunch of dead people and families that just lost their dads mm. because God is a man of war who will not allow his people to be trampled forever. Yeah. He's a man of war. So Laura was teaching at uh, Rio Women recently, and her passage that she got assigned was one of the names of God where it says, you know, the Lord is peace, right? It's Gideon finds that. And Laura and I were on a walk, and we were talking about that, where God gets this name, the Lord is peace, Jehovah Shalom. And it's so interesting. It's when Gideon is hiding out. They're being tormented by the Midianites and all these foreigners that are burning down and destroying all their stuff. And Gideon's actually hiding in a wine press, threshing wheat, like, you know, hiding from these people, terrified. And God comes to him and says, go to war, get out of the wine, get out of the wine press. And you're going to lead a battle against these evil foreign enemies. And I want you to go to war. And what's Gideon's response? You're the Lord of peace. Wait a minute, God. God's calling him to war, and Gideon's like, "Ha, oh, the God of peace." And there's something. And what, why is that? Is it peaceful to be in a wine press hiding from all your problems? No, no, that's the worst. 
To be cowering away and losing and watching wickedness and evil prevail is the least peaceful thing. Even if you're not fighting, it is the least peaceful thing imaginable. And God comes and says, go to war. And Gideon says, you're the God of peace. Because sometimes peace comes from putting your trust in God to get out of the wine press and go fight wickedness and evil and to go to war, to wage a holy war. And that's what we see here. You have God who's saying to Moses, like, Moses, like, you're, you are my, my bridegroom of war. You will fight for us. You will not allow us to perish by the hands of wickedness. And the modern church is so, like, weak and timid that we don't want to recognize the fact that our God is a warrior, And on the day of ultimate judgment, he is going to come with eyes like blazing fire and a sword coming out of his mouth, and he is coming to wage war because he hates evil and he hates injustice and he loves his bride, Mm. and he will not allow us to suffer forever under the wickedness of this world. So thank God that Yahweh is a man of war. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Amen. You know, there's another person in the Bible that's called a man of war. Do you know who it is? David. David. Well, he does fight a lot of war. He fights a lot of war. I mean, what Saul killed his thousands, David's killed his ten thousands. That's right. I mean, that's quite the reputation. So here's the weird part. Like you have you have David who's called a man of war, but it's not in the best context because God is coming to David and it's in First Chronicles twenty eight. And he's David's like, I want to build a temple for you. Oh, that's what stops him. And God says, That's right. I David, I love you but I'm not going to allow it because you are a man of war. And it's like, okay, well, why? wait a minute. Moses is like praising God for being a man of war. That's a good thing. David, man of war, he can't build the temple. And like, God, you told me to do all that too. That's that's correct. David's shoes, I'd be like, I was listening to you. So that's correct. But David, here's the difference. Because I sat and I thought, well, what in the world? Like, that just seems like, is this a contradiction in terms? Like, what's going on here? When the Lord leads his war guess who's coming out of the red sea with the israelites lots of other nations people who right? join them people who join them the egyptians are coming the nubians are coming you know all other nations are coming we know that for sure and so when the lord wages war he never fails to judge the wicked and to shelter the righteous when david is leading a war a geopolitical war as a human, you're not capable of doing that. And so he's, he's going along geopolitical lines, and he's killing the righteous and the unrighteous. And by the way, he's giving shelter to people in his own camp who are unrighteous. Jesus doesn't make those mistakes. <laughs> you know, He's a little more discernment. He has more discernment. And so as a man of war, God is ultimately just and holy. He's not defiled, whereas David has Maybe innocent mistakes. blood on his hands, and he has defended wicked people. It's also interesting that David is called a man of war and a man after God's own heart. Yeah. That's an interesting, you right. know, like we like one side of that, not the other. We like one side of David, but not the other. Yeah. We, I mean, you go and you think through the old Testament because you know, God's character hasn't changed and how many times God raises up people that literally have to go fight to deliver their people in the whole book of judges. Yeah. The whole book of judges, you see it through Exodus. You certainly see it all through Joshua like the prophets talk about it. And and what you see is like as a church, we've gotten to this point where we don't know how to fight, right? Mm-hmm. 
you either have the most obnoxious people who just love to fight that are looking for fights, the people that you don't want to be around where you're like, oh, please stop calling yourself a Christian. Or you get the other side of that coin where we're so like, oh, but Christians are supposed to be nice. We can't fight for anything. We don't want to hurt anyone's feelings and da 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 Mm. And we forfeit righteousness, and that's every bit as despicable to the Lord. Like, as a people, we need to learn to fight for righteousness along with grace and mercy, right? Those are those are hard things to balance. So anyway, moving right along, verse four, it says, Pharaoh's chariots and his host, he has cast into the sea. So what's he doing there? He's throwing some more stuff into the drink. He has cast into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. And so when you move on from this point, you'll see the Bible has repeated references of God judging things by throwing in the depths of the sea. We talked about that. So the Egyptian army is going to be thrown into the sea. Micah, right? Micah 7.19 talks about God, and he says, you will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. And we've talked about this a million times on this podcast in previous episodes, but what do the depths of the sea always represent? It's death. It's judgment, right? Oh, it always is. It's the obstacle to life. And so when he throws sin into the sea, he's saying, you know, by God's power, sin is going to be thrown and it's going to die. Think about Jesus. When he talks about those that are going to harm little children, what does he say? You would be better off. Tie a millstone around you and Uh go to the bottom of the sea. That's it, right? So Jesus is saying, if you're wicked and you harm little ones, you're better off being thrown into the sea. He says, faith can look at a temple mountain and pick it up and throw it into the sea. He says the same thing about the mulberry tree, that if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to the tree, lift yourself up and throw yourself into the sea because those things represented legalism or the mulberry tree represented death in the ancient world. And so he's saying faith overcomes those things. But now listen, let's go back to Revelation because the apostle John, when he's talking about this, is picking up on a lot of those same same thing. So Revelation 18, verse 21, listen to the way that, that God has inspired the end of the world to be talked about. He says, then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone. Hmm. Someone else talked about a millstone once. <laughs> and he threw it into the sea. And he said, with such violence, the great city of Babylon, all the wickedness of the world will be thrown down never to be found again. And so when Moses has his great victory over the serpentine king, what does he say? He says, they went down to the depths like a stone. They were cast into the sea. When John when is describing the final battle, what happens to the great enemy? He's thrown like a stone into the sea and never, ever found again. And so you pick up this echo that's going on, and we'll see it even clearer as as we go. Verse 6, your right hand. So this is interesting. In the ancient world, the right hand was always seen as as strength, even more so. Like you, still today we say, oh, he's my right-hand man. You know, like he's strong. He's I really rely on him. In Egypt and in Israel and in all of the ancient world, the right hand was seen as strength. In fact, like if you go back to the ancient world, when they, if you rebelled against the king and it wasn't yet death penalty, what they would do is they'd literally cut off your right hand. 
and they found in archaeology, like we've talked about Avaris. Just a bunch of right tons hands. Tons of right hands. That's and the freaky. all cut off and sometimes lumped together like you could tell like there was a, a group that rebelled and they all had their hands cut off and they were buried all in the same place. And it's like, hmm, right hands. All by lucky them. somebody out there was actually a lefty that got away with <laughs> right, it. Right, yeah. What's yeah. up? Exactly. Um, and so you see the right hand is a big deal. And when they would cut off your right hand, well, if you were a, it's like throwing lefty when you're a right-handed person. It's just awkward. You can't I'd do be it useless. well. <laughs> right? So trying to to fight with a sword as a, as a left-handed when your right hand's gone. Yeah, they're making you weak. And they're not only making you weak for this world, they believe that it made you ineffective for the world to come as well. But God's right hand, oh, it's glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. So God does n- will not have his right hand removed. His, ha- his right hand reigns supreme. Verse 7, And the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. And the language there, the Hebrew loves this. It's, it's literally take like bottoms up. You trip them. You sling them up. You overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, and it consumes them like stubble. So what are you imagining? When it says it consumes them like stubble, what is that? Fire. Fire, right? At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flood stood in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. So he's, he's thinking back to what he saw at the Red Sea, and he's like, man, there was, there was God's fire because they're traveling at night. How does God appear at night? And fire. And he's got the the hearts of the deep congealed just wide open, and he consumes them up like stubble. And the even in Revelation, there's this weird mixture, if you remember. Um, water and fire. Of water and fire, right? You have a sea that's like glass mixed with fire. What does that mean? Huh. Like, how, how are you getting... So, the final judgment's got water and fire mixed together as symbols of judgment, and Moses here is mixing the metaphors, uh, mixing the images of both fire, the blast of your nostrils, right? You know, it's consuming them like stubble, and then it's causing the floods to stand up in a heap. And in Hebrew, and, and in the ancient world, the nose was considered associated with anger. I guess that's still nowadays. Like, you can tell somebody's angry because it flares a little bit. You, you have a flared nose, but if I do this... You seem yeah, like you seem mad there, right? And so, if you ever see, it's kind of a fun little thing in the Hebrew. If you ever hear the expression "slow to anger," it's, it, God is described that way a lot of times. Of course, slow to anger in Hebrew, it's literally long of nostril. Like huh. he's got a lot of nose to play with. <laughs> you know, he doesn't. It's not just fiery, quick. He's not quick tempered. He's got a. That's why Hebrew is so hard to learn because they do stuff like that. <laughs> exactly. And you're like, I don't think what? I know that word. Got something about a nose. <laughs> it could be nose or anger or this or that. Yeah, but I mean, you could you see how that makes sense. So anyway, moving right along, this time the long nose, the the slow to anger fury of God came down on Pharaoh and consumed them. So verse nine, the enemy said, I will pursue. So, so here's God, powerful and mighty up to this point. And you're expecting like the common, just common sense, you would expect, okay, now it's going to give the perspective of the, our opponents. What are the opponents doing? Well, they're going to be cowering because this God is so powerful. No. 
Listen to what listen to the arrogance that just consumes the enemy up until their destruction. The enemy said, I will pursue. What? Like, get away from this, God. Do you realize who you're up against, you goofballs? I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. He's convinced he's going to win. My desire shall have its fill of them. I shall draw my sword. My hand will destroy them because my hand is greater than God's. And here's the crazy part. This is coming after the 10 plagues. Pharaoh pursues Israel after he's held his dead son. Mm, yeah. After he's watched his kingdom decimated by locust and hail and fear and darkness and frogs and livestock dropping dead, Pharaoh still up to the very end is like, I'm going to win. I don't need to side with God. I don't need to surrender with God. I am going to be able to pull this out even after watching a life that's been decimated apart from God, standing in opposition to God. His arrogance and pride will not relent up until the very end. What do you do with that? Do you think that still happens today? Yeah, I think I've, I mean. I mean, how many people go to their deathbed shaking a fist at God, refusing to accept his will and his design and his mercy? What's that C.S. Lewis quote about hell? Uh, the doors are locked on the inside. Um, everyone in hell chooses it. It's like they spend their whole life saying, God, I want nothing to do with you. God, I want nothing to do with you. God, I want nothing to do with you. And he says, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. There, You've spent your whole life shaking your fist at God. What makes you think that at the moment of your death, you're all of a sudden going to say, okay, let me in. I'm so excited to be in your presence and to be under your design now. Like if you have a sin nature that's just obstinate and refusing the Lord your whole life, what makes you think that's going to change? So that's a terrifying thought, but there's so many people who hold this exact position toward God and will up until the moment where, like here, it says, you blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in mighty waters. And I, they, guess I never even think about the Red Sea, I didn't even think about when we talked about it, but just the power of it, like, mm -hmm. like yeah. water's terrifying. Mm -hmm. Like just watching like, I mean, all the floods that have taken place in our own lives recently. It's like, oh, that's a little water can move cars. So now we're talking about a whole sea being thrown down on them. Yeah. Imagine coming to the sea. You've just watched like a tornado or some sort of fire pillar that has blocked you from getting at the Israelites. You've watched a God who's powerful enough to part the Red Sea. You're looking at his power in the face that's stunning in power. And your commander says, go. Like if you're if you're an Egyptian soldier, I'd be are last you, in that line, right? Like, like after oh, you guys, yeah, we can take them. You know, like what? But think about the arrogance that had to have been gripping the Egyptian commanders here. Like they they just they refused to believe that they could lose, that they might not be strong enough to make it on their own. That's. So many people, this, we read this and we think, well, that's just absolutely stupid. But how many people who know death is coming, death is going to get a hold of you. You are going to die. Nobody has ever defeated death and you desperately need a remedy for that. And yet so many people say, I refuse. Mm. I can win. I can do this on my own. I don't need the mercies of God. I don't want to submit to the Lord's design. 
And death is a far greater power than even the Red Sea. Mm. Nobody's getting away from that one minus one. (laughs) You know, the Lord Jesus is the only one who's conquered that one. And yet so many people arrogantly just keep raging and rushing toward death without ever considering you don't have the power to face it. Stop. Give your life to him. And what meets that arrogance is just uh, this. It's, it's almost like Moses is writing, you, you, just, you just blew your wind. And the sea covered them and they sank like lead, mighty waters. Meaning that in all the raging of the waters, they just go straight to the bottom, never to be seen again. They're utterly forgotten forever. They're just gone. So all of that arrogance and all that attitude and all that raging, just with a blow from the nostrils, gone. Yeah, It must have been shocking when they realized the sea's about to come down on them. Dude. That would would be terrifying. Yeah. Totally terrifying. So then this is all the, the portion of the Song of Moses that's looking back at what God just did. And so when you get to verse 11 and 12 and 13, there's this transition between looking back and starting to look forward. And so verse 11, Moses just stops for a moment, and he's just, he's just caught up in, in absolute worship. He's like, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Like, what did we just watch? We just watched you humiliate the gods of the greatest empire on the planet with no issue, with nothing talking back, nothing contending with your will. You are so faithful. Look at your mercies that you've shown to a bunch of people that have been complaining about you and standing against your prophet. Like, who is like you? You're you're totally different than anything we know. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And that's the question. Like, I mean, as everyone's singing this, you're forced to go, like, where else would we go? Like, who's who's better than this? You stretched out your right hand. And the earth swallowed them. You've led in your steadfast love. That's important. Covenantal, faithful, loyal love. The people that you have redeemed, purchased. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. And so now what you're going to find in a lot of the verbs that come is a shift to a tense in in Hebrew that's called yiktal, which has a, it's forward looking. It's future, even though all these are going to be translated in the ESV, and I think the NIV does it too, and everyone, they're all past tense. It's talking about prophetic language that's looking forward. It's as good as done, but it's looking forward. And so God is saying, you know, you've guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Well, that hasn't happened yet. You know, they're not in the promised land. The tabernacle's not built. The temple's not built. Heaven's not, you know, we're not racing into heaven yet. But it's talking about this in the past tense. And so everything from this point forward is looking ahead. Because remember, they're they're coming through the Red Sea. They're going into the wilderness. But this isn't where they're going to stay. They're not going to stay in the wilderness of Sinai. Where's their destination? Well, the promised land. They're going to the promised land, which is up to the north. And so the, the natural question that should have then hit all of the Israelites is, oh, my gosh, like there's a bunch of war, warring tribes up there. Like there's already people there, God. <laughs> yeah, right. So no doubt they're all terrified of what's to come. Yeah, God, you've delivered us out of Egypt, but now we've got all of these nations that exist up in the promised land at this point that are dwelling there. What in the world? Like how? And so God, the song continues, and this is to hearten 
the people of God. He says, the peoples have heard. Like, we've been in Egypt for 430 years. All those people up there have heard what just happened to Egypt. And so what happens, verse 14, the peoples have heard, they tremble, pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia, which are the Philistines dwelling on the coastlands toward the Mediterranean. Now the chiefs of Edom are dismayed. So Edom is going to be to the south of the Dead Sea. The trembling seizes the leaders of Moab, which are to the east of the Dead Sea. And all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. There's all these Perizzites and Canaanites and all these other tribes. They're all melting with fear of what's coming. This massive horde of two million Hebrews with a God who has just shamed Pharaoh and all the pantheon of the Egyptian gods is now marching toward their birthright. And so this is all looking forward to the future. And so it says, terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They're not scared of Moses. They're not scared of Aaron. They're not scared of numbers. They're not scared of slaves. They're scared because of the greatness of your arm, God. They are still a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. Now, what do you hear in that? He's looking out at the nations, and God is saying, I'm going to hold them back as still a stone until you pass by. Like, that's, that's what we're singing about. So I want you to imagine that in your, your mind. It's not even talking about warfare so much. It's saying he's going to seize them, and they're going to stay still until the people of God pass by, which is interesting. So it says, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. And so now we get back to this idea that this is where God dwells, and it's on a mountain. What's that sound like? Eden. And what is he going to do with the people? He's going to, what's the verb? You will bring them in and plant them. So the flower, the fruit, the Edenic paradise is going to be not trees and flowers and fruits, the people. Hmm. They're going to be planted there. And it says, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. And then it throws out a line here. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Can you think of another place where it talks about the Lord will reign forever and ever? And he shall reign for it's it's revelation like this is this is what's going to happen. So now I want to stop because now I want you to remember the second half of the song of Moses, which I think is a prelude to what's going to happen in the book of Revelation. Right. You have God's people that he has called out of an oppressive place that's ruled by the serpent and he is sending them to the promised land and he's going to hold all the nations as still a stone until his people pass by and he's going to plant them on the holy mountain where God will reign forever and ever. Now jump to Revelation and see if any of this sounds familiar. Ready? Jump to Revelation 16 and we get the, the bowls, the, the, the bowls that are filled with wrath. And we don't read Revelation because none of us understand it. I don't claim to understand it perfectly, but let me read to you the seven bowls of wrath and see if they sound familiar. Ready? Number one, the bowl of wrath, chapter 16, Revelation, painful boils and sores hit the people that are, have the mark of the beast. Does that sound familiar? There were some boils. and Yeah, we had that going on in the plague. So number two bowl, the sea turns to blood. Had that one. Had that one. Number three, the rivers and springs turn to blood. 
Sound familiar? Bowl number four, fire falls from the heavens upon the people. That sounds familiar. The land, five, the land plunges into darkness. That was one of the plagues. Waters dry up, number six. And then it says that all these demonic spirits spring forward, but it uses this expression, unclean spirits like frogs. Like I mean, That would be an odd one. Yeah, I mean, if you're picking any word you could have used there, like mosquitoes or gnats or what, but frogs, it's talent. It's meant to draw your mind back to when was the last time that there was a plague like frogs upon a wicked serpentine king? Well, we have to go back to the second plague of the Exodus, right? And so you get wicked spirits like frogs emerging and then seventh plague lightning and thunder and hail that sounds familiar and earthquakes and and all sorts of destruction right and so god has laid down all of these plagues upon the wicked world that he is coming to redeem so if you're following the pattern of exodus and you got all the plagues what comes after the plagues deliverance deliverance it's it's the crossing of the red sea okay well let's go from revelation 16 which is all the bowls of wrath and go to 17 and what is it what is it talking about and 17 well really weird so hang with me if you're tuned out tune in and really focus because revelation is weird and it's prophetic talk but revelation 17 starts and it says then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of wrath came and said to me come I'm going to show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. Say what? Like, okay, so you imagine this. Let your brain start imagining this. And so you're imagining a prostitute who's sitting on waters. Like your brain's like, well, why, how is she sitting on waters? What does that mean? Why, why would he say that? Why would he do that? And he's saying, with this prostitute, the kings of all the earth have committed sexual immorality. With the wine of, of sexual, whose sexual immorality, the dwellers on earth have become drunk. So this prostitute is just fueling all of the intoxication of the world. The world is out of its mind, chasing down these appetitive desires, and they're drunk. It, they're, they're out of their minds chasing desires of the flesh. And so then it's like, okay, there's a prostitute sitting on the water. She's the source of all the evils of the world. People are rushing to her to satisfy appetitive desires. Who in the world is this prostitute? Jump a few verses. Verse 5. On her forehead was written the name of mystery. Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes of earth's abominations. And so it's telling you this prostitute's not really a prostitute, it's Babylon. So who's what is Babylon? Well, we got to go back to Genesis 11, remember, where the creation of Babel, and it's this whole empire, this kingdom that sets itself up in opposition to God. If you remember, the creation of the Tower of Babel was to make a name for ourselves, to chase that, to make a tower that could reach to heavens to where we don't need God. We could speak on behalf of God. It was our kingdom, our city, our name, our will. And it was the kingdom that set itself up against God. And what Revelation is saying is it's Babylon. It's this city that is all about themselves. That's the prostitute that's sitting on the waters that's making all the nations crazy with her adulteries. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of saints, with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. So John is looking, the apostle John in this vision is looking and it's like, all of the world's wickedness comes back to Babylon. She is the great enemy of the church. She's the one who has slain all the martyrs and all the saints that have gone before. And so what Revelation is telling you is if Satan is the father of all wickedness in the world, who's the mother? Babylon. Babylon. 
That's it. And so you've got this gross inverted picture of what righteousness is in Babylon and clearly an enemy of the lamb. Her kings, later on it goes on and says, the kings make war against the lamb. This is, this is the war that was talked about in Genesis 3 where it says your seed is going to have seed against the war against the seed of the woman. Remember that? Like from the beginning this war has been going on and now it's about to come to a conclusion. But then you get to Revelation 17, 15 and all of a sudden John starts decoding these visions a little bit more. And it says, the angel said to me, the water's that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages, right? So remember, the first vision is just a prostitute on the waters. Then God starts decoding it for us. Okay, the prostitute's not really a prostitute. It's actually Babylon. And oh, by the way, the waters are not really waters. It's the nations and the tribes and all the, the tongues and everything else, the multitudes. And that woman you saw is the great city that has dominion over all the kings of the earth. It's the worldly corruption. And so you're sitting there. Now you've got a different image. It's telling you that that great city that's surrounded by the multitudes is really a woman and waters. So now we go back and get this, the beginning of chapter 18 After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. He's about to break some justice. And he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons and a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And so God is about to say, here comes the wrath, but first you get to verse four. Ready? Then I heard another voice from heaven interjecting, saying, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. And so God, at the end of all time, announces to his people Get out of the whore of Babylon. Do not participate in what she is doing. Come out of her. So stop for a moment. I want you to go back to John's original description, which was a prostitute sitting on many waters. And so God comes and says, come out of her, my people. So what has to happen then? Got to come out of the water. You're coming through the waters. And then he says, wait, 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 wait. It's not just the waters. I know I said waters, but what that really is is all the nations. So what are the people of God being called through? If the waters are really the nations, then the people of God are being called out through the nations. Now remember the song of Moses? I'm going to lead you to the holy hill, and I'm going to tell all of the nations, Philistia, Moab, Edom, the Canaanites, and I am going to hold them as still as stone until my people pass by and make it to the holy dwelling place. What is Revelation 18 describing? Come out of her, my people, into all the nations that love the prostitute and all the filthiness of the world. What's God going to do? I will hold them still a stone until you make it through to the holy mountain, 
where I will reign forever and ever and ever. And when you wonder why these same people are going to be singing the song of Moses, these are a people that have watched God pour out the plagues upon the wicked. These are a people that have been called out of the whorish city that sits on many waters. And God has made a way for his people to escape through those waters, through those nations, once again, to make it to the place of his holy dwelling. And so when they sing the song of Moses by the sea, they're singing it from experience, not just celebrating what Moses once did. You and I will sing this song, Will, from firsthand experience. What do you think about that? That's pretty wild. It's really pretty awesome. And so the way that it's describing that final day, that final judgment, when you get to, you know, later on in, in Revelation 18, it'll tell you that terror and dread falls upon all the people because all the people that are going through the judgment, they're all looking at Babylon and they see it on fire. They see it being destroyed. They see all of their, all of their life, their wealth, their, all of their industry, their jobs, everything that they lived for is all being destroyed. And what does it say? It says that they're weeping. They're, they're all in absolute agony like they're they're just they're crying over the smoke of her burning they're in torment and their eyes are fixed on the city and meanwhile while their eyes are fixed on a city that's burning up what are the people of god looking at they're going in the opposite direction with their eyes fixed on the lord and do you know how that's described we're told in revelation 21 as the nations part ways to make this isle in a sense, the people of God are walking out of Babylon, the whorish city, but they're made virginal. They're dressed in absolute purest white robes. Their sins have been washed away. They are utterly clean. And what are they compared to? A bride. And that's how the book ends. So for the people who have their eyes on Babylon, it's the worst day of their life. The loss of everything. Lots of weeping and, and misery. What's it like for the people who have their eyes fixed on the Lord that are glad to walk away from Babylon? Well, it tells us in Revelation 21, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. I love this part. And he will wipe away every tear. It's the first thing. It's not God putting you know, his feet up in the recliner saying, okay, now worship me. I'm no longer serving anymore. No, God comes from his throne and wipes away every tear from their eyes while the rest of the world is mourning over the loss of all their stupid trinkets and wealth and power and everything else. God is coming to the faithful and the humble who thirst for him, and he is wiping away their tears. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. That is our God who leads us to the holy hill where he dwells and will reign forever and ever. And so when you read the song of Moses, that's your song. That's your future. God has not just delivered you from the serpent king, and he's delivered you through the Red Sea. 
and baptized you into a new world, but he will lead you into the promised land. Pretty awesome. Amazing. So my big advice as we close out this episode, put your eyes on Jesus. You know, how many times do we come across great stories of judgment where the people are looking back at what they're leaving behind? That was true of Lot's wife. Bam. You know, she looked back. She couldn't leave Sodom. Oh, my wealth, what I'm leaving behind. And rather than grabbing hold of the Lord with both hands, she looks back and destruction comes. Think about the the Israelites that do come out of Egypt. And they're like, oh, I wish we could go back to Egypt. I'd rather be in Egypt. Well, they're left to die in the wilderness rather than being able to go into the promised land. Don't want to go back to Egypt. Or you, you think of Jericho where they're told, do not take the treasures of the city. The ones who take the treasures of the city suffer. Jesus himself says that when that day comes, when the second coming comes, do not rush back to your house like Lot's wife to gather up all of your petty possessions. You need to start recognizing and training yourself to recognize where your true treasure lies because when that day comes and Babylon's on fire, it is going to be really easy to get lost with the crowds looking at all the smoke and the destruction, especially with our dumpster fire world right now, and to think, oh my gosh, I'm losing everything that's sacred to me. My country is falling apart. My wealth is falling apart. Inflation is stealing this from me. You could go on and on and on about all the things that are on fire. Fix your eyes upon the Lord because on the day that he comes, you're one of two camps. You're either mourning over everything you've lost or you are celebrating with the great song of Moses over the God who is your strength, who is your song, who is your salvation, who is your husband of war, who fights for you to redeem you and to purchase you for himself. And that is an inheritance that is eternal when Babylon is a pile of ash. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Next time, we're going to finish up Exodus 15 and get into some of these wilderness stories that happen right after, all of which are pointing you so very clearly to Jesus. Uh, the one next one we're going to get into is the Waters of Mara. I love that story. It's really, really rich and beautiful and points to Jesus unmistakably. So we have a lot of those stories, manna, water from the rock, the battle with the Amalekites. Those are going to be coming up in our next episodes. You're going to find very fascinating. So join us. And I want to encourage you, share this podcast with others. Encourage them to listen to it. Like the podcast. Leave us good reviews. Uh, do all of those things because they really do help our platform to, to grow and to spread. And it's well, I'll tell you, it's encouraging to me and Will as well. Have a great week. God bless. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.